Do you remember the last time you rode in a bumper car? Do you remember bumper cars? Thank you. <laughs> I guess Six Flags is about the only time that I can remember back doing, riding a bumper car. And it's been years, but I learned something that uh, I didn't really like about bumper cars. It gets personal really fast. <laughs> it's permission, basically, to ram your vehicle into the person that you've always wanted to cream. Maybe a family member. Maybe a, the friend that you brought with you. Maybe that's why you brought the friend with you. A coworker, a boss, or a total stranger. I remember uh, one of the last times I was in riding a bumper car, we were going around and around, and all of a sudden, from the side, just bam, somebody hits me, and I turn and look at this, this total stranger there behind the rule, just with this evil face. It's like, who are you? I'll tell you who you are. You are the guy I'm going to get before the time runs out. You have one goal at, at that point. Your whole purpose in life has switched to now payback on this total stranger. Yeah, road rage, exactly. But honestly, it's sort of permission to do what you wish you could do on the highway, isn't it? When that total stranger cuts you off, you know, wouldn't it be great to just be able to go, oh, yeah, bam, and just, just hit him? Well, evidently, somebody thinks that this is just fine. Uh, you know, a monster truck cuts you off, or maybe you're standing in line at Walmart, no matter how you're dressed, and somebody pulls their cart right in front of your cart, and they cut you off. You just ram them with your with your cart or if you're at a Christian concert and the person sitting in front of you stands up with their arms up like that, that's fine except now I can't see listen to this definition an opportunist is a person who exploits circumstances to gain immediate advantage rather than being guided by consistent principles or plans. That is an opportunist. An opportunist is a person who takes advantage of the moment regardless of principles, regardless of priorities. Their goal is themselves and to do whatever it's necessary to advance their desires in that moment an opportunist. Few things provoke more frustration than dealing with opportunists, and they are at large. For example, Director Derek accepts a public commendation in a staff meeting for a project that you deserve the credit for. Opportunist. Sister Sadie grabs the last three cookies in the cookie jar, leaving you none. Pastor Pete pushes to attend another church mission trip himself rather than allow another staff member to go who's never been. 
Or Vice President Vic uses an insider moment with the boss to make a special request that benefits him, but fails to mention you and the other direct reports. You've got your own examples. We all do. But when we feel sideswiped by opportunists, when we feel that the bumper cars have have gotten outside of Six Flags and now they're in our lives, we need to do more than get back in our metaphorical bumper car and teach them a lesson and stoke our righteous anger. We need to, to just pause and ask ourselves, why am I so frustrated? The answer seems easy. The answer to that why question seems easy. But I think we'll see from our text today that it is a challenging answer. Look with me at Mark chapter 10. The Gospel of Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, Jesus is sort of at the tail end of a section here in the Gospel of Mark in which he has been training his 12 disciples how to do ministry in the upcoming age of the church. And he's been teaching them, in a sense, that the way up is down. That in order to be the greatest, you become a servant. That you don't pursue, you don't take the opportunity or become an opportunist, as it were, take advantage of the situation for your own benefit. Ministry is one of the most subtle temptations to do that because you can use Jesus Christ for your own advantage. And that's what the disciples were doing. And frankly, that's the challenge of all of us when we volunteer in ministry or even those who are in ministry full-time, is to use the ministry as an opportunity for us to advance our own personal little agenda. Believe me, it happens. Mark chapter 10, let's start right in verse 32. We left off with Jesus' words in verse 31. Remember, all this flows together. It's not just, you know, little section, little section, little section that stands alone. It all flows together. Verse 31, actually, why don't we start there, what we looked at last week. Jesus concluded his conversation last week uh, by saying, but many who are first will be last and the last first. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him saying, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Notice Mark says here that again, verse 32, the word again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen. This is actually the third time that he's done this. Look back at chapter 8, verse 31. This is, this is time number one. Let's just look at these real quick. Chapter 8, verse 31 says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days to rise again. 
and he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Remember that? Jesus mentions the cross for the very first time, and Peter, really speaking for all the disciples, his reaction is immediately self-preservation. Lord, this will never happen to you. And what Peter really means is, I don't want that to happen to me. Lord, this will never happen to you. So the cross is presented, the reaction is rejection of the cross, and self-preservation. That's 831. The next one happens in 931. So look at chapter 9, verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? But they, but they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed which one of them was the greatest. So here's mention number two of the cross. First time, it was rejection and focus on self-preservation. Now he mentions the cross, and once again, it's rejection in the sense of ignoring it, and the focus isn't on self-preservation as much. Well, I guess in a way it is, but it, it sort of changes and becomes the self-glorification. Which one of us is the greatest? Jesus has just talked about dying on the cross and being abused in this way. And the disciples are saying, arguing with each other, which one of them is the greatest. So now, chapter back to chapter 10, he just mentions that for the third time now, that he is going to die and rise again. See the pattern? Take a wild guess how the, what the reaction is going to be this time. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't get better. Um, James and John, after listening to what Jesus says, pull their fingers from their ears and verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Matthew actually gives us a little more information, tells us that James and John got their mom to ask Jesus this request. And if you do a little cross-referencing, I actually re-looked at these verses this morning because I wanted to make sure that I was remembering correctly. And, you know, it's not ironclad, but it's pretty clear if you look at, at several of the Gospels mentioned that there are three particular women who were with Jesus and three women at the cross. John mentions fourth, uh, uh, Jesus' mother. But there were three other women, and one of those women is, is referred to three different times. Two of the three are referred to exactly the same in all three instances. But the third woman is mentioned three different times in those three instances giving the implication that it's the same woman, but here are three different truths about her. One says that she is uh, the wife of Zebedee, which means she is the mother of, of James and John. Another says that she's Mary's sister, and another, I think, actually names her as Salome. So if all of these are the same person, then James and John asked their mom to go... Uh, use, pull the family card and make this request because James and John were Jesus' cousins. 
And so Jesus' aunt, Salome, comes up with this request. Who's going to say no to their aunt? Mom, go ask Jesus if we can sit at his right and at his left. And so she does. Jesus is faced with uh, dealing with this issue of nepotism. So pretend you don't know their response for a second. Pretend you haven't read ahead. What do you think they will ask? He's just shared about the crucifixion. What do you want me to do for you? Is the question. Now look at the request in verse 37. It's unbelievable. They said to him, Grant, or literally, give to us that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Remember the pattern? Chapter 8, the cross is mentioned. The reaction is self-preservation. Chapter 9, the cross is mentioned. The reaction is self-glorification. Chapter 10, the cross is mentioned. The reaction is once again self-glorification. Give us glory. Let us sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your glory. Now, Jesus had already told them that the 12 were going to sit on the 12 thrones of, uh, of a rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. So James and John already knew that they were going to be leaders in the kingdom of God. What they're asking are to be the leaders, to sit at the right and the left, the most prominent place in the kingdom of God. I wonder how long they walked before Jesus responded. Did he, did he go for a couple of minutes of just walking along the road in total silence? Or was his response immediate? I don't know. But look at verse 38, at how Jesus responds to this request for self-glorification. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's using a metaphor here. To drink the cup is to accept what's in it. And he'll, he'll use this later when he refers to the cup that the Father gives. Are you able to, uh, to drink the cup? At the Last Supper, he refers to the cup of suffering. In uh, John chapter 18, around verse 11, he says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So to drink the cup is basically to die on the cross. And to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, to be placed into that situation. Baptism is its not just being dunked in water. Being dunked in water represents that you are being placed into something. To be baptized into the name of Jesus means that you are placed into the name of Jesus and you are now identified from this point on with Jesus Christ for the rest of your life, for all eternity. So to be baptized with the baptism he's to be baptized with means are you able to be placed into the same situation of suffering that I am? These are serious questions. Look at their not-so-serious answer. Verse 39, they said, we're able. And Jesus said to them, well, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. 
But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Were they really able? Amazing. Within a week's time, they're on their way up to Jerusalem. And you'll notice the beginning of chapter 11, which we'll look at uh, next week, Lord willing, begins the triumphal entry, begins the Passion Week, begins Jesus' final week. And so they're walking up to Jerusalem. This is less than a week from Jesus' death. And less than a week from the moment that James and John said, we are able, James, John, and the rest of the disciples are going to run like rabbits in the Garden of Gethsemane when it looks like they're going to be arrested with Jesus. They abandon him. Are you able to die like I'm going to die? Well, they weren't. They weren't. They, they might have wanted to be, but the truth is they weren't. What do you want me to do for you? Their answer, give us glory. Here's a lesson that you might want to think about. Because from Christ's words in verse 40, we get a principle that we can apply to every time we make a prayer to God. And the principle is this. A servant of Christ cannot choose his or her place of service. God does. God does. Look at Jesus' words again. Verse 40. To sit on my right or on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. God is sovereign, and he places you sovereignly where he wants you to be. You can respond or not respond to that, to that in obedience or lack of obedience, but the truth is the opportunities of service that God gives us are opportunities of service God gives us. They're not ours to claim places of glory or places of humility. Um, well, look at verse 41. James and John made the request, but actually all of them wanted it. Verse 41, we're told, Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Start your bumper cars. The other ten are thinking, why didn't I bring my mom on this trip? <laughs> if that's all it takes is to ask. They were indignant. And who do you think was probably the most indignant of all of those other ten? Peter. Absolutely Peter. Because remember, of all of Jesus' twelve disciples, Peter, James, and John were the ones that Jesus always called out from the herd to go do something special, to witness special miracles, to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now James and John, the brothers, get Jesus off by himself and take advantage of that opportunity and make a special request and leave Peter completely out. After all, there's only a right and a left. I guess Peter can sit behind Jesus. <laughs> but Peter, how would he have felt? Well, it's interesting. Remember last week, if you look back in chapter 10, verse 28, it's Peter who says, 
Behold, we have left everything and followed you. The thought being, what's in it for us? So Peter had his request too. It was just last week. But notice verse 28. Verse 28 is only a few verses before verse 37. It's the same context. You have Peter, James, and John basically all making special requests. And of course, all of the other ten felt indignant as well. They felt indignant not because it was a righteous anger. They felt indignant because it was an unrighteous jealousy. They wanted it. But James and John were the ones that had enough courage, I guess, or gall to request it. I used to work with a man like this. You don't know him, so don't try to figure out who it is. Or you probably don't know him. But um, he was hard to wrap my head around. He was really hard to wrap my head around. He, he would work situations, and uh, a, a co-worker of mine said that this man said, I always knew I was destined for something great. And another co-worker of mine said that this individual runs the race beside you to win. And the way he wins is not by working harder or extra creativity. He wins by tripping you. And I thought that was pretty insightful. He was an, definitely an opportunist. And these 12 disciples were the original uh, team of rivals, you might say. They were opportunists looking for a way to trip the guy next to him so that they could get ahead. The irony is actually pretty incredible. Jesus is talking about giving his life. It's the third time now Jesus has talked about going and giving his life, and the disciples are quibbling about who gets the box seats in the kingdom of God. It's ironic. So Jesus takes a time out. They're walking up to Jerusalem. I can just see Jesus pulling them aside. And it says here in verse 42, that's basically what he, did, what he does, calling them to himself. So he like says, look, let's come over here for a minute. Gets out of the caravan of everybody walking up to Jerusalem, and now it's just Jesus and the twelve. And he says to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but... It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. It's not the first time he's told him this. He's told him this before. In fact, he's told him this a couple of times before. Look at the details of, of these verses, of, of Jesus' gentle rebuke, though I'm not sure how gentle it was, because in the original language, it is emphatic. Verse 43, the words, not this way, in the Greek, are very emphatic. It is not to be like this with you. The world's model of greatness is to take their power and abuse it. I have a position of authority, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the opportunist. And I'm going to use my position of authority to push my agenda, whether or not it's, it's uh, the right thing to do or whether or not, in the context of ministry, it's God's. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's the world's model of power. 
the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over. And we've all known people like this. And maybe honestly, at times, we've been this. If we've had authority in some context, maybe we abused it. Uh, we're not perfect. But hopefully we realized it and, and, and repented of it. Jesus says, You're, you have taken the wrong model. You have taken the model of greatness that the world gives. That is, that you trip a brother to get ahead. That your goal is to, be, is to bumper car your way through the kingdom of God to where it's just a matter of getting up front and now you request, can I sit at your right and your left? And everybody else who wasn't fast enough to scurry up to the front and get those special seats now feels indignant with the people who have them. Jesus said it is not to be this way with you. And the words that he uses there, as I mentioned, are emphatic. And the words that he uses here for but, the word but, is a, a strong contrast. The world is this way, but you're not to be this way. You have taken the wrong model. And then in verse 45, the key verse for the book of Mark, Jesus shows them this is the model of leadership. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now is the fourth time Jesus has mentioned his life ending. And finally, he tells us why. So far, he's told us three times just that he's going to die and be abused and rise again. Finally, he tells us why. He's giving his life as a ransom. Jesus is paying for something with his life. Why should the first be a servant of all? Because that's what Jesus did. Here's the second lesson. The first was a servant of Christ cannot choose his or her place of service. God does. The second is a servant of Christ sees greatness as sacrificial service. You want to be great? Jesus says the opportunity is right in front of you to be great. Be a servant. It just depends on who you want to be great in front of. If you want to be great in front of the world, well, hop in your bumper car. If you want to be great in front of God, be a servant. That's faith. Because you are waiting a lifetime for the commendation. Being great in the eyes of the world, a lot of times they'll get you a commendation right away. They even give awards for it. I've seen it. I've sat in the audience and watched it happen. They gave a reward. But in heaven is where the true reward and the true commendation comes. Jesus calls us to be a servant and to take a cross like he will. So he's told him three times now that he's going to die. Finally, he tells us why he's going to die. And then it would be very tempting to pray and close up shop and save Bartimaeus for next week, but he is so critical to the application of this passage that we need to go on. And we can. Verse 46, Then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. 
When the people, uh, uh, when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth, but he doesn't call out Jesus of Nazareth. He calls out Jesus, son of David. Jesus, the Messiah, have mercy on me. Remember the question that Jesus asked his disciples back up at Caesarea Philippi? Who do the people say that I am? And the answer was, well, some say, you know, John, you're John the Baptist. Some say you're one of the prophets of old. But Jesus said, who do you say that I am? In this little interchange here with Bartimaeus, we see those, those same themes emerging. Bartimaeus was told, Jesus the Nazarene is here. But his response is, he is more than that. He is the Messiah. Who do you say that I am? Who did Bartimaeus say that he was? Not, not the Nazarene, the Messiah. Bartimaeus has, even though he is blind, and this, is, this, this irony is intended to arrest our attention, even though he's blind, he sees clearer than most. Jesus is the Messiah. Great. Now, what's the goal of the Messiah? What do you want me to do for you? The question is coming. Verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, he's calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus, and answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Seems like a real simple miracle until you realize that it's in a context and you look at the context. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 51. Look back at verse 36. He said to the disciples, what do you want me to do for you? Same question, but the answer was far different. When he asked that question to the disciples, James and John said, give us glory. When he asked that question to Bartimaeus, verse 48, son of David, have mercy. I want to regain my sight. James and John understood their need of Jesus as the glory giver. Bartimaeus understood his need of Jesus as the mercy giver. Bartimaeus is is the, is the last miracle in the book, except the resurrection, before the resurrection. And he is so prominent, he is so important, because he becomes, this blind beggar by Jericho becomes the quintessential idea of what the disciples should have been. And the example that you and I are to be. What do you want from God? Glory? Or mercy because what you ask him for is what you perceive your need is whatever you're asking God for is what you perceive your need is and if you are asking God constantly to put you forward to make you look good to to 
bring about um, uh, to save face. You know, you know what I'm saying? Glory. Or are you coming to the Lord on a daily basis saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner? Bartimaeus got it right, even though he was blind. Bartimaeus saw Jesus as an opportunity for mercy. And that's the view that we should have. Bartimaeus gives us the most correct response to Jesus as the Messiah that we've seen so far in the book. You know, Jesus' question to the blind man might seem a little silly. What do you want me to do for you? Well, clearly, Bartimaeus wanted to see. And because Bartimaeus at this point couldn't see, I wonder if instead of when he asked Bartimaeus this question, if he didn't turn and look right at James and John, what do you want me to do for you? In other words, let's create a little deja vu here. I want to see. And Jesus creates the contrast that James and John should have gotten. There's a pattern that we've already seen in the book, but I want, I want you to notice how it goes just a little deeper. The pattern that we've seen, like I said, from Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. Look back at chapter 8 real quickly. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. It says, they came to Bethsaida, and they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him, take him by the hand, took him out of the village, and then he asked, do you see anything? So they bring a blind man to Jesus, and Jesus asked them, do you see anything? Look back up now at what he said to the disciples in verse 17. I'm sorry, in verse 18. Having eyes, do you not see? The miracle of the healing of this blind man at Bethsaida was a lesson for the disciples who couldn't see. Who couldn't see spiritually. And then, of course, we, we talked about that when we were there. We talked about how the months ago when we were in chapter 8. So I'm bringing that back to your mind to, to let you know that Mark begins a section here of this blind man, the blind man of Bethsaida becomes the, the beginning of a bookend. You can think in your mind. Um, do you see anything? Who do, you, who do the people say that I am? Well, just a man. Who do you say that I am? The Messiah. Yeah, and the Messiah is the one who rules. Jesus says, well, you don't see so clearly. Let me clear things up for you. It takes him north to Caesarea Philippi, and that's what we've looked at in Mark 8. Um, and he begins to teach the cross. Rejection. Response, self-preservation. Chapter 9, the cross, rejection, self-glorification. Chapter 10, the cross, rejection, self-glorification, and what do you know, another blind man shows up. So Mark is showing between chapters 8, 9, and 10, the cross mentioned all three times. The response from the disciples are basically the same all three times, rejection, self-glorification, and self-preservation. And the blind men on either side of this are basically like headlights saying, pay attention, 
Because what Jesus is trying to teach these disciples, he is also teaching you. Having eyes, do you not see that your greatest need for Jesus is not glory, but it's mercy? It's mercy. And all this right before the triumphal entry in the Passion Week. So it's a great setup for us. You know, Christianity, God never promised that the Christian life would shield us from the temptation of being an opportunist. When we were born, our fallen nature gave us our keys to the bumper car. And we keep them in our pocket. And they're real easy to pull out and immediately to get in the bumper car and start uh, responding. Jesus told his followers that greatness is a fine goal to pursue. In fact, he applauded it, as long as you understand what true greatness is. It's being a servant. Each of these disciples, these 12 Galilean nobodies, saw Jesus as an opportunity for personal greatness and personal gain. Our temptation with Jesus Christ can be the same. Now, in a sense, it's healthy, like Bartimaeus. We, we know our need for Christ is mercy. We do need him. He is our opportunity, but he is our opportunity for grace, for mercy, because that's our greatest need. Our greatest need for Jesus is not for him to put us in places of prominence. Each of the twelve argued about which one of them was the greatest. We saw that. James and John used a family relationship to jockey Jesus for the best seats in the house. We saw that. We're going to see, as Mark goes on, that Judas is going to take advantage of the fact that he was trusted with the money and pilfers it for his own use. He also takes advantage of insider information about Jesus in order to get more money and betrays him. And Peter, we're going to see, uses his close relationship with Christ to boast of his superiority and his devotion to all the others. All these others may fail you, Lord, but I will never fail you. I want to ask you three questions that only you can answer. Three questions that only you can answer. When somebody cuts you off in your pursuit of greatness, when the opportunist uh, bangs you in the bumper car, when, when James and John asked the question that really you wanted to ask, here are three questions. Even if another's motives are purely opportunistic, what is that to me? Isn't God able to deal with them in his time and his way? Second question. Did their actions simply reveal my own desires? Am I more frustrated that I am wronged? Or am I really just cloaking jealousy behind the facade of righteous anger? And finally, am I seeking greatness as Jesus defined it or as the world defines it? You know, it's humbling to realize that Jesus doesn't need to advance us to advance his kingdom. Our participation is a privilege. We are along for the ride. And it's a great ride when we realize that just to be able to serve Christ is a great privilege. We don't need a place of prominence. We really don't. And occasionally, and I can tell, testify 
because there have been several times in my almost 30 years of full-time ministry that God may occasionally test you and take you out of a place of prominence like that. How are you going to respond? It's a great test of your motives. And uh, they're always pop quizzes. He never tells you ahead of time, by the way, next week, it's going to be tough. He just keeps it a secret. A servant doesn't choose his or her own place of service. God does. A servant of Christ sees greatness as sacrificial service. (laughs) Bartimaeus got it right. Let's follow the example of this wonderful blind man who now can see And it says that once he did, began following Jesus along the road. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a text that we can study and not simply understand simple things like structure, the blind man's or bookends. We see the cross three times, same reaction from the disciples three times. It's not analytic. We aren't here simply to create a chart or to make an outline or even to have a better understanding of the text. But our goal in better understanding the text is better application of it to our lives. We need these lessons on a regular basis. We need the reminder not to pursue uh, what the Oscars reward, what's even in our Christian circles sometimes are rewarded priorities that can be so out of whack. Let's not take the world's model as of greatness. But Father, open our eyes like you did Bartimaeus, who saw a long time, or much clearer, before he actually physically saw. Give us the insight that he had that day, that our greatest need from Jesus Christ is not glory but mercy. And let us really believe that. So that when we serve in the place that you have chosen, not in the places that we elbow our way to get to, but when we serve in those places, that we can do it from a position of gratitude, of humility, and of a servant, just like our Lord Jesus did. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Help our lives to mirror that of our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.